Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. This is a conversation with Meredith Feynman. It is about her book, but about her as a practitioner. And the book is an accomplishment. Connected to the book is a boot camp and a number of other ways that she's fulfilling what the book promises, which is to learn to brag better. (laughs) Yeah, brag better. She calls it mastering the art of fearless self-promotion. And given my name, Firon, I should replace this title with mastering the art of Firon self-promotion because at the end of this conversation, she catches me being too diffident and too uh, indefinite about promoting our book, the book that Peter and Vale and I did. So there's a lot to be learned here in a very short amount of time. And I'm hoping we can uh, have another uh, session with Meredith. Fascinating person and the title, Brag Better, is very timely in this very fast changing whitewater world. If you can't have your voice heard and point out your accomplishments at any point in time, who else will? (laughs) Self-promotion, a good thing. Meredith Feynman. Well, I I want to brag about something, folks. I want to brag that I am getting to know a very braggable person, Meredith Feynman, uh, who has a book called Brag Better, Mastering the Art of Fearless. I, th- I think you spelled it wrong. It should be fear on self-promotion. Yeah. Meredith, uh, but I'll forgive you for that. Uh, but it, it, it's been a while. There's been a couple of times when we were going to have this conversation and then as has happened to all of us these days, one thing or another just keeps coming at us, setting us off our pins. And now you're back on your pins. And I must say to folks, I wish you could see this fascinating background that <laughs> Meredith is sitting There's in front of. a lot of. there, yeah. <laughs> and I noted in your bio on the book that you, you also, uh, among being a, a very energetic person about self-promotion for particularly women, but not just women. You also have a fashion thing going. Uh, talk, talk a little bit about that first, because I, I see it kind of on your wall. <laughs> yeah. So I am an expert in sustainable fashion by way of resale, vintage, and secondhand. Basically, any clothing that belonged to someone else first, I've been buying and selling and advising um, since I was 11 uh, is when I started doing this. And it's it's another piece of what I love um, uh, in terms of art and expression. You know, I, I thought that these two things had to be so separate. I was very careful with coaching folks and never touching on appearance necessarily. There are a lot of executive coaches that'll do that. Um, but I do care a lot about fashion as expression, which I think is very important. And obviously I do a lot around expression period, whether that's your voice at work, whether that's how you're dressing. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was something I did that everybody knew about. And then I, uh, you know, more recently have a couple of ventures in it, but the industry has exploded, um, oh, yeah. you know, in terms of 
the sustainability of it all that was not always uh, a mm. focus in the way that it is now and it's interesting to see how new retailers that retailers that sell new new garments um you know are going to catch up to that and catch up to the next generation's interest in sustainability as they you know really have to contend with yeah. climate in a very serious way yeah well, I, I'm already sensing in my mind, at least, a, a theme about Meredith, Meredith Feynman. Starting at 11, very entrepreneurial, sees the future uh, <laughs> through a glass <laughs> and, uh, and, and showed unusual energy around something that mattered. For you, it was sustainability and you found uh, something beyond used clothing. You, you gave it a, a new twist. Uh, and here's how the themes emerging in my mind. Uh, I, I jotted down a couple of words as I reflected on the book and you and uh, and and the persons who you'd like to help. Audience, curtain, and voice. So I somehow or another in my mind, I had the feeling that all of us, and particularly those uh, who want to put themselves out there and promote their accomplishments, need an audience. So there's a lot of attention in, I, as I recall through the book, in that whole feeling about know your audience, uh, win your audience, uh, uh, don't be afraid of your audience. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that first, because I think it feeds into Curtain, which I'll talk about next. What about the audience for your uh, people you're helping? Yeah. So my audience is called the qualified quiet people that have done the work, but don't know how to talk about it. So basically um, it is irrespective of gender and irrespective of level of seniority. But if you're listening to this and you know, you either feel like your work goes unacknowledged um, or you know someone who has done less than you have, but gets more credit, whether that is just praise, verbal praise, whether that is praise in the form of money, whether that is praise in the form of leadership opportunities. I care on the grand scale about righting the wrong of how we pay attention. So we have this really intense inverse relationship between volume and merit, and there's a tremendous amount of noise. And what I work on is getting people that deserve to have their work acknowledged and voices heard to get comfortable speaking about it. I don't love putting the onus on that qualified quiet person, but I also know that getting those louder folks to be quiet is not something that is really um, very feasible uh, or very likely. Um, and so um, I always want to be very clear that these are, you know, broken systems of how we pay attention, but also whose voices we pay attention to. Um, and that is also intertwined with privilege and, and who we see as authority. And, and so on the grand scale, it's about dismantling those systems, but my part in it is giving you another professional tool. Um, and this is a skill. Uh, a lot of people will say, I would rather just put my head down and do the work great work falls in the woods and doesn't make a sound. You can't get more money. You can't get that promotion. You can't be acknowledged yeah. and, and you really have to ask for it. And it's, um, it's something that 
that is hard to contend with, but it's it's a learnable, teachable skill that I've taught to tens of thousands of people at this point through people that have bought the book, through people that do my Brag Better Bootcamp, through corporate speaking engagements. Uh, so it is doable. It's just a new skill. How did that um, audience start to matter to you? Uh, 11, it was close, but mm-hmm. it, a little beyond 11, uh, I, I you, that that audience has to matter to you a lot. You've reached out to a lot of people, and you've been very consistent about the uh, essentially the un, unsung uh, real heroes. And uh, personally, how did that begin to matter to you? And then from there, evolved this wonderful business. Yeah. So I grew up in the media and politics bubble of Washington. I identify first and foremost as a writer. I am the child of a talking head and journalist um, <laughs> and and the child of a, a vocal lawyer mother. I think seeing how to make noise as a profession very strategically was I was shown to me very, very young. Um, and I've you know been able to see how that system operates, particularly in media. Um, so there's that. And, and then also always being unafraid to use my voice, but not understanding why that was so hard for other people. And then, and then showing them how they could, um, you know, I was not carrying a lot of favor necessarily with other people, my own age for being as outspoken as I am, or, um, I mean, I was a total teacher's pet, which is just like part of my identity and I'm fine with it at this point. But, uh, you know, I think that I am too. I mean, yeah, what the hell? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that well, made a big just, difference in our lives. <laughs> this is who I am. And I think that as I got into, I never had trouble sharing my voice in classrooms, in other settings. I had a lot of my own fears and insecurities, but the voice stuff was never was never one. And I started freelance writing when I was 18 years old. I'm now 35. Um, And I was sort of unafraid to put myself out there with writing, with starting a business and starting a PR firm, which basically brag better is the habits publicist packaged in a way for every worker. But uh, I have never been afraid to use my voice, particularly in print as well. Um, I think a lot of that is just straight up genetic. And so that is sort of how a short, a short version of how that came to be. Oh, and, and you know, because I feel a, a very strong mission in what, in what you're saying that while it comes easily to you and I'll admit to me, the empathy uh, that it takes to, look to your left or to your right and notice that while you're putting it out there, at least the other two people aren't. And I, I would add my uh, curtain to this. Uh, you stepped out in front of the front of the curtain very young, it, mm-hmm. or it was literally open for you. Yeah. I know all the years that I taught, I taught in public uh colleges and universities. So the people who came there tended to not have a lot of confidence in bragging of self-promotion. It was part of being perhaps the working class that uh, came to my school, which I love to teach, but it used to bug the hell out of me. And I said this to Lizzie, uh, who is in the podcast and introduced me to Meredith folks, uh, Lizzie Freudman, that um, I, I used to literally want to pick some of these folks up and put them out through the curtain onto the stage. But stage fright was uh, palpable. 
even if I brought in guests every week to class and I said, okay, have at our guests, you know, ask a question. There'd be the bumps on the log. I would sit there and one or two, uh, <laughs> one or two Merediths would be, oh, I have a question and a, a really interesting one and we'd have dialogue. So back yeah. to that feeling yeah. of what do you do? How did you feel for that person who just will not step through that curtain? Yeah, I think that I also, I will say, have a tremendous amount of privilege and also was always encouraged with my voice. Um, And that was also modeled not only through my dad, but through my mom as well. I think there's a lot, I do a lot of work with women in voice, but I, you know, don't only work with women, but many women are told to perform gender in a way that equates um, goodness with silence, uh, attractiveness with just not speaking. And so there are a lot of societal factors that I feel profoundly grateful that I didn't, that weren't imposed upon me and it was never a question. Um, and I think that that is, you know, really important to acknowledge. I, and all of the tens of thousands of people I've spoken to about the themes of what I do, I mean, Particularly culturally, you know, if you're listening to this and uh, my book has five Asian language editions, I thought what I did was so profoundly American um, and deeply intrinsically opposed to Asian cultures of, um, you know, quiet and community and and not not using your voice. But it turns out that people are very, very interested I'm not surprised. Uh, in, in those things. And I'll say, which is to say that your culture informs what you were told about gender or identity or where you're from or languages you spoke or mm-hmm. your parents or, you know, I, I that informs also what I tell people is, you know, think about, take a second and think about some of your earlier memories about voice or what was told to you at crucial ages tweens, teens about how you how you present in the world, particularly with your voice. Mm-hmm. And while that can be an additional factor that makes it hard, it does inform a lot about who you are. But, um, you know, this is not just happening in a vacuum. Oh, right. And I, it's what, when Peter Vale and I uh, set out on our c- collaboration to sh- bring practice to the attention of anyone and everyone, and so why something as seemingly generic as practice on the surface. But when we started a probing and then Peter had already done a lot of conjecturing, which now is the book on practice as a way of being. What I'm getting at is that you, if you take out any thing that we think is an aspect of practice, it has at its root, it has at its root. I choose, that's the key word to Pursue results, regardless of how difficult they may be in changing conditions, because I want the benefit of growth and learning that you get when that practice sets you down place after place in your life. So you really have to start the whole thing in terms of self-promotion with I choose. Mm -hmm. And I suspect among the 10,000 of your folks that you've connected with, either indirectly or directly in many more readers, I'm sure there has to be a point where they themselves before they, maybe after they read your book or maybe to read your book where they have to say, Hey, I've got something here. I am the best damn. And you, you fill in the blanks that I know. Uh, But what about that moment of choice? 
It seems yeah. to me a lot of people don't make that choice. They just kind of go through and take on whatever roles handed to them, do a good job, but they don't have any passion and they certainly don't want to stick their neck out. Well, let's talk about two or three things here. One, you know, there's some straight up evolutionary stuff about sticking your neck out and separating yourself from a group of people. You know, I had a lot of fright around public speaking and some of that is straight up biological. I remember talking to Susan Cain about it, who wrote Quiet. She's one of the probably two dozen people I interviewed for the book. If you were standing alone in front of a group of people, it usually meant that they were going to kill you. So the stoning at the, yeah, at the, so, at the know, gate, <laughs> but you got to think about there, there is that straight up deep seated human instinct. But what I'll also say is uh, one, this should not be done alone. Bragging better is a team sport, get allies, friends, family, loved ones, colleagues, to tell them you're working on this and have them help you. You do not have to do this by yourself. Yeah, that would uh, help a lot. Yeah. And then the second piece is like, this is a practice that you will start. You can start wherever you are on it. I'm obviously on one very extreme end, um, but it's just something you practice your whole career. So there is no rush. Uh, it's never too early. It's never too late. Um, but, you know, maybe that just looks like, taking five minutes every week to commend yourself to yourself on one thing you've done. Maybe it's calling a friend, maybe it's telling a colleague, but it, it can just be straight up telling of calling a friend and say, Hey, I'm really, I want to share with you. I'm working on, you know, touting my work and I feel comfortable saying it to you. I mean, you can start profoundly small. I don't care where you start just as long as again, even if you say it to your dog or cat, you know, that's, that's what matters. Yeah, I get it. And I, now as I'm picturing in our fundamental way of thinking of, of practice is the sort of the stream of results that we send uh, we, out, you know, in into the future in our imaginations, but leave in our history in the past. But I, I'm thinking now, if I were going to lay out some results, given what you just said, uh, Meredith, I would say, all right, I'll put one out. I, I parred the 11th today. Well, I'm not. I'm a. I'm a very under self uh, under undisclosed golfer. I I don't like to mm. play with other people. Now the thing is, if I would put that out as a result, the next thing I would put right next to it is, and who did who did you tell, or who who would be impressed to know this, or who needs to know this in order to recognize me as an improving golfer, so that we, when we're listing our our accomplishments, maybe we should have a parallel list, you know, column B, which is where we can put the word out. Now, maybe I'm already taking mm -hmm. something out, out of your book and claiming it as my own, but no. that, but that notion of adding into our achievement uh, activity, it's making the choice to not just let any particular achievement uh, fly away into the past, but to see if there's some way of hooking it to who could know this? And and not just from a marketing or selling point, which is always very important, but who can know this so that I can lead? Because if you've done something that has leadership value and no one notices it, it really, it fails as a leadership act as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really important to lead by example. And yeah. you gave a, you, it's, I mean, you want to, 
healthy pride is good for business. And if you are listening to this and you manage people, how are you fostering that environment? How are you modeling these behaviors? Because you never know who is watching you as well. I mean, there are people who have said lovely things to me about my book, Lizzie being one of them, and now we work together. But, you know, I don't know who is taking, seeing me or seeing you or seeing anyone do X and Y and Z. And the fact you're sharing it, you know, inspires other people, but also they understand that it's okay to do this, that it is something that you should do at work. I also think you highlighted something that's really important, which is that when you are sharing your work, it's really, it's, it's crucial that it's something you're proud of and you care about, but that you also give some context. So like, I don't know squat about golf. Like, <laughs> you could tell me whatever you just hit was like the best thing ever, or the, I really, I have no idea. Yeah. So what's really important there is to make sure that a lot of people want to lead with an award or the shiniest, sexiest thing, which is not the best brags or one are things that you genuinely love and care about, but you have to give people, yeah, you're showing me an award, but you have flex, to give people, flex, flex, yeah. yeah, but you have to give people context for them to reward you and understand, especially, you know, unless you're in their industry or intimately associated with their work, they don't know what that means. And it doesn't, uh, and so it's always really important. Now, what I need you to do with that golf brag right now is I need you to explain what that means to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and frankly, the last piece of our way of thinking about practice is in when you arrive in a particular context that your practice brings you. So context is very important for anyone to actually understand anything we say about practice. But when you're in that context, if I said that I, I, I parted the 11th at the uh, competitive tournament golf course that Travelers just held its international tournament at two weeks ago, you'd go, that's amazing. Uh, but it's a, a little uh, public course down the road. Uh, but I have been trying for almost three years at age now 79, but 76 when I started to par that hole. Now mm. we have context. Yes, it's a little public course. No one is going to get impressed by that, but they should be impressed to know that after all this years of being a really kind of a hacker, I finally achieved parring that hole. <laughs> oh, well, see that, but, but so you, you, but what you did was really give a great example and also show the importance of that. See, I need that context that you just gave mm -hmm. me in order to commend you in order to say, wow, that's really awesome. You spent all this time working on this thing and now you can do it. It was, it's a tremendous example of not only sharing your work, but explaining to people, you have to assume that your audience knows nothing about whatever you're talking about. Mm -hmm. has to, you have to really break it down for people because that was a great example of my wanting to champion you, but I couldn't because it was something I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And the truth is most people want to champion your work, you, the proverbial you, yeah. you know, but you have to help them along too. Uh, would you slip that over to, uh, you mentioned supervisors, uh, bosses, as we used to call them back in my day. Uh, it seems to me as I've watched, I've taught management for 50 some years, so I should be able to answer this question without even asking it. But I am asking it because one of the uh, real sticking points that keeps coming up again and again in the Gallup polls and others is that managers don't don't, don't appreciate me. Managers don't recognize mm -hmm my work. And so I'm going somewhere where they will. And now we have the great resignation process yes. going on that Tom Kelly, uh, Casey and, and Lizzie have uh, talked about. And I've said, yeah, 
So as part of your uh, audience, going back to our first point, do you have manager leaders who are listening to you and saying, hey, I have a role to play in being a good audience for these, um, for, for the brags, if you will, from my, from my employees? Yeah. I mean, listen, it's part of your job as a manager to help people feel acknowledged. It's not your job to make them feel acknowledged necessarily by the entire company, but it's really easy to say, to, you know, have 15 minutes for your team every week and say, all right, everyone share a win so we can all, you know, end on a high note this Friday and, you know, have a win to go into the weekend. Maybe that win is simply making it through the week. But yeah, how are you also helping people do that? When it comes to being acknowledged, it could look like high praise from your boss, but it could also just look like being asked the question of how can I help promote your work? I want to make sure that I'm up to date on what you're doing. How can I help you share that with me? Um, yeah, a lot a of times it's, it's simply just asking is what people want. Like when people want acknowledgement, sometimes, as I said, it's money. Sometimes it's a bigger title. Sometimes it's a speaking gig, but sometimes it's just knowing that someone cares enough to ask them about their work. And it is really crucial for effective communication, for business, for the job you have to be communicating with the people that work for you. Um, and, and so really carving out some time there um, is just really important. You know, I have a thing, it's also something to think about. For me, I have a problem where, uh, and it's something that I have to temper, where when people work with or for me, no news is good news, but I have to take a beat and give some praise and give acknowledgement because for me, I'm like, oh, there's no, you know, you'll know if something's wrong, but it's really important for me to tell people when something's right. And I've been working on that as well, because sometimes people that work with or for me think that, you know, I, I over communicate, but it's really important not to skate over the good things. You know, I, I tend to, I will always respond if I need something done differently or if I need, but it's, it's, I have to do that too. And, and not everyone needs a gold star all the time, but some people are highly motivated by praise. And so you yes. also have to understand as a manager, what motivates people. Yes. Well, and then I'll go back to my results stream again. Uh, if I were you know, no one's uh, uh, training a TV camera on me when I'm playing golf. But uh, if I were in a in a business setting, which many most of the folks you're working with are, then the results of your practice uh, have uh, combined value. One is they always have result to you as a practitioner because you're learning every time you're trying something and achieve it. But you're also being somewhat paid for those results, some of which uh, will go almost largely to the company's benefit, but you're, you're building, building, building a record of results, what we used to call the track record in the day. Uh, and uh, so being clear as a manager, a manager leader to a person, okay, among the results you're achieving here, these are some that really matter to us or me, you know, the company. So I'm looking for those in particular. Can you see that sort of seeding the 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 conversation you know, it's each time saying I'm, i love all the things you're doing but make sure of these three things because these are the ones i'm really looking for and when you when they get those done that's where you go up and say hey i want the gold star <laughs> yeah and it's okay to want that i mean yeah. it's okay to, to want 
to want praise and also to ask for it. I, as I said, when people work with or for me, you know, they're like, hey, I haven't heard from you. And I was like, you'll know if there's a problem, but I also have to pause and let them know they're doing a good job um, because I work very quickly. I'm intense. I'm type A. You know, I, I'm moving on to something else and, and working on other things, but it's very important if you manage people in any realm, which is something that uh, I think is profoundly difficult. I mean, you know, bragging might be hard for you, but management, I think, is, is profoundly, profoundly difficult. Um, and it's, it's very important to make people feel seen and acknowledged, but also asking them what that looks like for them. I mean, I am all for clarifying important conversations. Um, maybe they do need that gold star and maybe they don't, you know, say, Hey, I want to make sure that I'm acknowledging your work. You know, what is the best way for me to do that for me to do that? Maybe it's like, Hey, they might not know, but you, you sure want to ask. Cause what if it's just literally having this conversation with them feels acknowledging enough, but if there's a way I can do it, that is what they want to hear and will make them feel valuable, then that's what I want to do. It gives the uh, practitioner then uh, some custom work to do because that they have to become very good at different people telling different people uh, how it it would be most beneficial for them to be recognized. So it's it's not one size fits all. Uh, no, but I, also you shouldn't have to be guessing. Like no, you know, that's it. Just take the guesswork out because you know they're hiding behind the curtain. They're peeking out through the little hole. They see the. Uh, uh, who's out there? What do they want? Rather than saying, okay, now I know who's out there and now I know what they want. I'm going to play to the uh, uh, hard to this guy's crowd, soft to this guy. These are the ones who already love me. These are the ones I have to convince. But managing that expectation, your own expectation is some come across to me as something that any one of us should work on. All that matters in business. I've been in business for myself. 13 years, but longer if you can, you know, count the freelance writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for a long time, the only thing that matters is expectations. That's actually, in my opinion, the only thing that matters, managing them, setting them, understanding them, expectations and communication. That's, that's, I mean, that's not totally it, but if I've learned anything in servicing clients, in what I want and what other people want, it's, it's expectations and every single person has different expectations and you better go ask them what their expectations are. There is no more important question than what are your expectations here? Because uh, your own expectations are never the same as someone else's. Never. <laughs> it's, stun- it's stunning <laughs> how the mismatches come in unless you can communicate. So conversation there becomes an extremely important gift to bring to the, to the, to the moment is, you know, we've got to match expectations. We've got to talk about this. You know, uh, that's because here's the other thing. You know, now I have the brag better framework and my boot camps. But when I was working as a publicist, if I had a client, I would I always ask people for you know their goals first. You can get attention in any direction, but if it's not towards the avenues you want, for mm-hmm. example, like. There are lots of different examples in the book, but if I have a client who wants to sell their company to a short list of 10 larger companies, well, where are their eyeballs? Where are they paying attention? What are they reading? What are they looking at? But also, 
I would have what I wanted to do and what I thought was best for, for someone in a publicity scenario, but not what they actually wanted. And if all they wanted was for me to like help along their Twitter feed, which, and, and like help them build a content calendar or like pitch one particular journalist that was actually low hanging fruit and said, I was running in a circle doing all this work that they didn't view as success. Like that's actually the two most important things are, you know, what are your expectations and what would make us a success for you? Those are the two questions I ask all day, every day I did with individual clients. And now just, I think it's just really important to ask in general, um, because if their definition of success, like a lot of times you're doing so much work in a different direction that they won't even view as success anyway. So it's a waste of everyone's time and energy. It's true. And and we don't want it. We've learned through the pandemic and, and now coming back into something seeming like a new time, but at least we can get back together is that the, the time wasting, it becomes, I think, uh, something that we're now uh, as conscious of in some ways as we are inflation, you know, the inflation yes. of my money, but also the uh, the cost of my time is going up too. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing how that refines back to the, you know, refinement that refines people's uh, ability to, to make lots of success, both in the way of how they acquire their their resources, their money, but also how they have some time left to enjoy the things. I want to take this last couple of minutes to, uh, Meredith, to um, ask you, what would you do next if you don't do this? Because you're so involved in this. This is a big this. Yeah. <laughs> is there something else that's sort of itching at the back of your head that you might like to try? Yeah, a bunch in the in the secondhand fashion, sustainable fashion space, which I'm actively working on, you know, is always on the other side of things I'm thinking about. I think in my ideal world, it would be 70, 30, you know, brag better and that stuff, maybe 60, 40. Um, and so I think that like, it's there, I have a very clear, you know, itching there. And then like in a totally different realm, uh, I have no idea. Probably some sort of artist. I mean, I consider myself an artist, but my medium is words. But yeah, I don't, I'm not, I don't know. Maybe I would own a little second, a little secondhand store in like a beach town and just hang out with my, with like 12 Shih Tzus. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I've just saw the novel you're going to write. You're going to know, you're going to have that little shop in the, in the town, but you're such a keen and, observer of human behavior in in wonderful ways you would be uh, that would be the setting for uh, some wonderful characters who would come in and out of your shop and uh, uh and I'm, i'll throw in a little traveling pants you know in there too you know that one made a yeah. lot of money <laughs> you so know you she can, actually that author she based those books on a group of girls is in washington i forget if she's from here i'm in dc if she's from here or uh, yes, that was like a big deal because that book, their home was set uh, right outside of DC. I remember that. I loved those books, there you go, um, so I but think I'll the say, you know, I, I hope that I can, I don't know, fiction. I have written nonfiction for, I don't know, 17 years. Fiction is very hard. Um, so we'll see. I, it is hard. I wrote a novel in order to get some business pro, uh, concepts uh, to to an audience in the 80s. Uh, it didn't sell a lot. But see, I found writing a novel much easier than writing uh, an academic paper. So it, it, some of it is, you know, different strokes for different folks. But I must suggest 
that since I've already gotten this wonderful impression of you as being uh, uh, you know, a free range person, yeah, <laughs> you I know, like I, want, I want to get out there and, and that you, if you were to experiment in fiction, you have so many characters already in your head, in your heart, that you could place them in a context and maybe the characters could demonstrate a bit about how uh, they've gone from uh, being uh, inwardly focused and shy away to, you know, busting out. Uh, Because I think these days, and people want short stuff. My novel was too long. (laughs) A novelette. How many words was it? Uh, I only think in word counts. This is a writer's uh, conversation now. but It's it's been a while. It's it's probably a lot of words. It was about 212 pages of normal book print. But uh, but I needed it to tell the story. But if I could take any one segment of that book, it's called Inside Knowledge. Take my character, Dana Gilbert, and put her in a contemporary setting right now, I could put her back into life again. In fact, I did that a couple of times for my library, a book just published my book. So, and I'll do all this shameless promoting of my book after this, but I was well, saying- remove the remove the word shameless, uh, please. Oh, it's done. It's off. I'll never use it again. I'll tell you, that's a really good, good b- b- before we depart- any of those qualifiers you put around your brags, you may as well not share anything um, because what you're, I know it's hard. I know this is uncomfortable, but shameless or, you know, plug or I hate to brag, but, or, you know, self promo alert. It's very hard for me to champion you it, with the, with that kind of qualifier. Cause I don't know what to do. Um, and I, as in any, any audience member receiving your sharing like that, is I know that anxiety or that dis- this discomfort is transferring to me as your reader, as your audience member, as your listener. And then I don't know how to get on board with you. And I don't know how to, the whole point of public relations and the work that I do is you want to push a message forward. So I'm unsure of if you want me to push that message there, forward. There you go. And and folks, you, you just heard me get a, a very good lesson <laughs> because, and I would claim, disclaim that it, I came from a culture where you, you know, kept told over and over again, don't get a big head, keep your head down, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I've been told by wonderful people, including Peter Vale, David, you've got to stop being so uh, humble. You've got to stop being so uh, subordinate to, to, to others. And here I am, you know, all these accomplishments and I'm still doing it. So thank you. Well, it's hard. It's hard to crack. I mean, listen, this is what I do for a living and I will always flag it when someone says something like that. But the point is, for the most part, people want to get on board with you and you have to help them do that. And I understand your inclinations. I mean, if it were easy for you to do these things, I would not have the job that I have. I no, have exactly. That I have. <laughs> so, you know, also for the first time, really, we live in such an entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial culture that the individual, I mean, America is tremendously individualistic. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this book has been printed in a lot of different languages and it's of interest in a lot of different countries. It's an essential part of, of work now. Um, whereas before it was so frowned upon uh, to separate yourself from a large company or, you know, hang a shingle yourself that, you know, it makes sense. It's also, I believe, deeply generational as a millennial, you know, we understand the brand of me and I was coaching executives in my twenties and they would be like, well, what do I, you know, 
that was always an interesting struggle too, because we like young men in business, but not young women. And that's a whole different conversation. But, you know, listen, you just demonstrated the reason why I do the work that I do. (laughs) And there you have it. This has been a wonderful conversation, Meredith Feynman. I, I real plug your book and I will, without ever using the S word again, (laughs) plug uh, the work that Peter Vale started and I helped him finish. And and now it's our book. So thank you so much. This, this was going to be one of my favorites. Oh, I'm so, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I can't wait to, to interact maybe with some of your listeners. And um, I am epically easy to find narrativefindman.com. Brag Better is the book, Brag Better Bootcamp. Your company can and should pay for you to do it. Uh, And I'll see you all on the internet. Thanks for listening to The Practice Podcast, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, and, and one more thing. How could I forget? The book On Practice as a Way of Being is available now in digital form something that would be new, like podcasting to many of us. And it's a a great way of learning more and more about what this podcast presented when Peter Vale and I originated it several years ago. So please come to www.mylibrary, one word, dot world slash practice. And you'll see what I mean. Thank you.